Welcome everyone to another episode of Tea Time in Wenasa. I'm Rizan, and today we are joined um, by Sabrina Mon. She's our guest today. We're so excited to have you, Sabrina. So thank you thank so much you. for being here. Um, we're gonna just give you a quick intro and then you can take it and give your introduction of yourself. So Sabrina is an actress, director, producer, filmmaker. I just kind of came up with these terms as I actually Googled her. Um, and uh, the first time I actually came across Sabrina, she was um, doing a viewing in Alexandria, Virginia of her documentary, The Forgotten. Um, and that's how I kind of found out about her. Um, she's a Eritrean American, um, and I'll just let her do the rest of her introduction. Thank you, Razan. So yes, um, I am not an actress anymore, but yes, I used to be. <laughs> uh, once, once something is on the internet, you can never undo it, you can never <laughs> delete it. So, <laughs> um, but uh, yes, I'm Sabrina Aman. I live in uh, Los Angeles, California. I'm currently in Virginia, quarantining with the family. Um, and I am a filmmaker and a full-time uh, executive director of Refugee, the nonprofit organization that serves Eritrean refugees in Sudan and Ethiopia. Okay. All right. Well, I, you have a lot going on. I think, um, you know, you may seem like a regular girl that just grew up in the DMV, um, but I kind of wanted to just tell us about how you got to where you are right now. You can start with your childhood and like, where did you grow up exactly? So I was born in Arlington, Virginia, uh, but I grew up in Qatar, uh, lived there the first 12 years of my life. Then we moved to Eritrea in 1998 to live there permanently. But unfortunately, uh, the war between Eritrea and Ethiopia started that year. So a lot of people left Eritrea, including myself and my family. Uh, we were fortunate enough to have the opportunity to come back to the U.S. Uh, because I was a U.S. citizen. My sister was a U.S. citizen. So um, at the time, they were only letting Americans out. Um, and so, yeah, I came to the U.S., went to um, school here, George Mason University, uh, worked for a few Ooh. years in D.C. at the World Bank, um, got a little bit bored of that. I felt like that wasn't really my calling in life. And something told me to move to the West Coast um, 10 years ago. And so I just packed all my stuff and moved there. and. Yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> wow, what an amazing this is like journey. like a big summary. I don't even know. There, yeah, <laughs> a lot within what I just said, but for you guys with the details, so. <laughs> we love details. <laughs> yeah, we're here for all the details. Um, what I'm kind of wondering about is what kind of sparked your interest to move to the West Coast? First of all, I don't know if you guys, have you been, um, have you been in Virginia sort of like all your, most the majority of your lives? Yeah. Yep. Okay, so yes. Do you guys remember that snow blizzard in 2010? <laughs> yes. Yes. The, the snow apocalypse. <laughs> I think that's what it was called. Three weeks. I think we were stuck. Everybody yeah. was locked in. People were stuck in hotels, school, everything. Work was canceled. Um, I remember. I think that was. I don't know. December, January 2009. It was January 2010, and I was just like, get me out of here. This is crazy. Get me out of here. Like, I'm not interested in this. You know, I remember my car got stuck. I was going out in DC with my friends and I'm driving and my car got stuck at night. It's like 11 PM. And a group of guys came to help me push the car forward over the snow. It was just a nightmare. Um, and after that, I was just like, okay, A, I don't want to be here because of this weather. I want to go somewhere <laughs> completely different, you know? Um, B, at the time I was, sort of at the end of my term at the World Bank and my option was to renew my contract with them mm -hmm. or to end my contract and pursue something new. 
And during that time, I was like, okay, my World Bank job is amazing. I'm on a great salary. My parents are happy. Everyone's happy, but I'm not happy. Yeah. Like, this is not what I want to do. Um, there's much more I want to do. This is not, I just wasn't happy. And at the time, I didn't even know what I wanted to do. I was too young to know. I was in my early tw uh, 20s. But I was like, all right, I know this is not it. And I will never know what it is as long as I'm staying here sort of in a sheltered environment. Like, you know how it is in our culture, you know? Mm -hmm. So I figured the best way to figure out what my calling is to spread my wings and go as far as I possibly can to challenge myself and to be able to explore what my passion is, what my calling is away from my comfort zone, away from the community, the people that I love the most influence in me. And so that's what inspired me to move to LA. And I never looked back. I love it there so much. I feel like I became a woman there. I learned about life there, all the challenges, and it was not easy. I went through ups and downs, more downs than ups. And, but I had to go through those experiences to become who I am today, you know? And finally, now I know what my passion is. I know what my calling is because I took that risk 10 years ago to move to the West Coast. Scary a little bit to just start off on your own in a new place. I don't know if you knew others there, kind of had to create your own network and, and family there. It wasn't scary. I was nervous, of course, but it was more exciting than scary. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you why. Have you guys heard of the term TCK? Third, third, oh, oh, third, yeah, culture, third kid? culture kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us could relate to that. Mm -hmm. I grew up being a third culture kid in the sense that I was born in the US. I grew up in Qatar, Qatar and then I moved to Eritrea. Then I moved to America. It's like I was never able to fit into any specific society. I wasn't Arab enough to be a Qatari or a Qatari. I wasn't mm. Eritrean enough when I went to Eritrea. They're like, oh, you're Middle Eastern. You, you know, you have an accent when you speak to Grinya. Um, so you're not one of us. Then I moved to America. I'm like, I'm American. They're like, no, you don't look American. Where are you really from? So <laughs> I was never able to fit in. And so moving to California was just another new place that I have to, you know, get used to. And so um, being a TCK growing up, I didn't like it, but it actually ended up serving me later on especially now, whenever I travel, whenever I meet new people, I can fit in mm -hmm. anywhere. And so it was really more exciting for me. I, I was not scared. I remember I was nervous. Um, I didn't have money saved. Um, I think I had like $2,000 saved at the time. <laughs> um, I, you know, it was a new beginning. I was, it was like a rebirth, an opportunity for me to make new friends, new environment, new weather, um, and to just, I don't know, I liked it. It was great. <laughs> I remember I called the World Bank the day before I left and I said, HR, I called HR. I'm like, you guys, I think you guys made a mistake. You deposited this much money into my account. I'm just want to let you know, I'm, I'm moving, to, you know, I'm traveling to California tomorrow. I want to make sure this is handled. And they're like, Sabrina, you used to work in HR. Did you forget? And I'm like, forget what? And they said, before you leave the World Bank, before any World Bank staff member leaves, we usually give them 15% of their income as a goodbye and a Thank you. Uh, I didn't know Wait, what? What? 15% yes. so yes. of your yearly income as a goodbye gift? One time, like yes. as a bonus? Yes, exactly. Wow. No, I need to, I need to look. <laughs> that is great. Wow. That, that was 10 years ago. I, I wouldn't expect it to be changed right now, but hopefully it's not. I don't see it changing. <laughs> the World Bank has amazing perks and benefits, which is why, mm. you know, anyway, so. Mm. Leaving that, must have been hard. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, actually, Wait, so how do people not take advantage of this system and just like leave and come back and leave? And come back? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But once every you, two you know, years, once you leave the World Bank, it's really hard. Like they discouraged me. Like the senior staff members are like, "You're making a big mistake." You know, people fight for this opportunity for this position. Blah 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 blah. And to me, the day before I left, the fact that they I received a surprise chunk of funds that I did not ex expect remember I only had two thousand dollars to me that was a confirmation from up above saying mm -hmm. I got you here you go you know go and do what you need to do mm -hmm. so that allowed me to take some time off when I got to LA to kind of just explore my options see what I'm good at that's when I tried acting great didn't want to do that and life led me to where I am now I think it's really um it's a difficult process for women especially because we're not really taught to choose ourselves. We have to learn how to do that. Um, and a lot of times we're also taught that, um, you know, we're supposed to sacrifice ourselves and our lives and parts of us for the greater good of our family or our children or our husband, whatever that thing is, it kind of changes over time. So I think you know, learning how to choose yourself I know for me, it was something that that happened with books and with my friends and like people around me really supporting me and pushing me. I felt like I can take whatever risk, whatever happens, happens. And, you know, God got me because my heart is telling me to do this. What was it that gave you the courage or that cultivated that I'm going to choose me? Was it just because you are fed up? It's because I was sick and tired of waking up at 7.30 every morning to go to a job that didn't really do, that didn't excite me. You know, the slogan at the World Bank is to reduce world poverty. And I didn't feel like I was reducing anything by sitting behind a computer desk doing administrative work, you know? And so I just listened to my body. I'm like, I'm not enjoying the process of waking up every morning at 7.30 doing something I don't like. And I'm not gonna lie, I'm not a morning person. I'm, not, I'm a night person, so it was a struggle. Um, and so I. To me, I knew right away that when you love what you do, you're going to wake up as early as you need to, or you're going to stay up as late as you need to, to do it because you love it. And that's not what I was feeling at the World Bank. So it really just happened so quickly. Like they asked me to renew my term for another two years and the option was to renew it or to pursue something new. And I just knew that it wasn't for me. Like I said earlier, I, every decision I've made in life, what was after I prayed Salat al-Istikhara. <laughs> Salat al-Istikhara is like my best, you know, it's like the best thing that I always do, no matter what, I always pray. And it, I don't dream about it or anything. I just sort of feel it in my intuition. I feel it in my gut, you know, the right thing to do. And so I've always kept that near to my heart. So I always tell people, pray. I tell my Christian friends, my Jewish friends, agnostic friends, whenever they're lost in direction, I'm like, listen, there's this prayer that we have in Islam called Salat al-Sahara. I'm going to send you the, exactly what to say. And I really email it and text it to them. Wallahi. And I'm like, get up at the darkest night before dawn. So get up like at 3 or 4 a.m. Because God will listen to you. He'll be at the lowest you know, level of heaven. And they're like, whoa, this is so cool. Wallahi. And then they do this prayer. And then within a week, they call me. They're like, Sabrina, this is so amazing we have our answer. We know what we want to do now. Like I, I've made a decision, you know? And so there's so much power in prayer, no matter what people's faith is. And for me, whenever I'm confused or lost in direction, I've always made, made that prayer. But just to answer your question, Sana, like the, what made it enough, what, what, when I said enough is enough, 
is just me saying, look, I'm not happy. I'm not happy. I'm a girl who feeds off of energy. I want to be happy. Life is too short. If you're waking up every day and you're not excited to be awake, to do what you love, then you're not happy and you need to go, you need to be happy, you know? I have a follow-up question for somebody that let's say, you know, logically you do want to keep that nine to five. You, you have bigger invested interest in having that structure of a, you know, a typical job that may not excite you anymore or make you happier. That feeling of wanting to get up every morning and do it. How, what advice do you have for them, Sabrina or Sana, um, for finding that middle ground to still pursue the thing that makes them happy while maintaining a nine to five or a main job? a side hustle? Like, how do you think that that works? Is it all or nothing or can you do both? So let me ask you, the nine to five is something that you love or you're just doing it as a form of security? You're, it's just form of security. Okay. Um, if you need that form of security to get, this is my answer. And then so maybe you could shed some light on that too. For me, if, it, if you need that form of, if you need that security, because you've got bills to pay, you want to pay for the roof over your head, um, then keep that job but work very hard on weekends or after hours to get to the point with whatever it is that you're, that you're really excited to do your side hustle, work very hard so that you could eventually make money to be able to live through that and not your nine to five. Mm. Don't do it the way I did it where I'm like, I'm going to give up everything. I'm going to, I only have $2,000, you know, and I'm going to go to LA. It was a gift from God to get that 15%, you know, uh, you know, percentage that they gave me for my salary, which was able to get me through LA for six months. I always tell people save enough for a year because six months go by really fast. Like we're already in June. You know what I mean? Six months fly by. So save a year's worth of income. And then your side hustle needs, you can't work on it full time. You have to work on it over time. Like you know, you've heard of people saying like when you have your own business, you don't work 40 hours a week anymore. You work 60 to 70, you know, 70 hours a week. So mm -hmm. you put in a lot more tears and sweat when it comes mm -hmm. to your own business. So I always tell people, if you're going to just let go, if it's all or nothing, make sure you have enough savings to get you through the year. Mm -hmm. Um, and really like, excuse my language, bust your ass off. Like you really need to hustle hard, you know, get a good mentor, get a good team behind you. And so, yeah. The thing that I struggle with is how, how do you balance like that urge to try something new with not wanting to feel like you're throwing away like a nitma, right? Like God, God has like blessed me with like this job now. Like I had that experience. I rocked the boat. I came back and now God has like put all these new blessings in front of me. Mm. But how is it for me to just now be like, you know what? I'm no longer happy with these blessings and I want to try something new. Mm. Like, have you, I don't know like what you're. I feel you on fad. I'm there with you. Yeah. <laughs> <There's> parallel right now. <laughs> talking about like that guilt where you feel like I'm throwing. Yes. It's, I had my year in 2017 where I quit a job and it was an amazing revitalizing 10 months for me. Yeah. But I feel like I settled right back into a comfort zone and I'm like getting that itch again of like, mm -hmm. oh, I need to do something outside my comfort zone again. So I think it's supposed to be a cycle, but how do you know it's the right time? You know, the right time when, okay, so I, I'm a firm believer in obviously God cannot come down and say, okay, I'm foul. This is what you need to do. He communicates with us through our intuition. Mm -hmm. And so just the fact that you have this feeling of, okay, I'm not excited to do this anymore. I want to do something else. I want to do this, especially if you know what it is that you want to do. That's God telling you this chapter has ended. It's actually time for you to pursue this new thing. Mm -hmm. It's not Shaitan. Shaitan is actually telling you to stay in your job. You know, Shaitan is telling you, <laughs> this is, this is, giving you the security that you need, stay here, don't go, don't let go. But I think God is actually 
the fact that you're thinking, I'm done, I'm not excited, I want to do something else, it's God putting it in your intuition, sort of like a stamp of approval saying, go, don't be afraid, I got your back, mm -hmm. you know. Now, if you don't know what it is that you want to do, of course, do not quit your job. Like for me, I feel like I'm planting seeds everywhere I go. I plant seeds. I'm like, all right, here's the documentary. It did it, it raise the awareness. Let's do refuge care. Let's make some changes. Let's always continue to make. I'm never gonna close refuge care. And next thing is, you know, and so on. And, and I think that, and I thought about it years ago. I remember I said, okay, why is it that I don't know what I want to do? Why is it? Why am I all over the place? Why can't I just choose one thing and excel in it? You know, sometimes yeah. I look at people who just have one thing and they just excel in it, whether it's a bakery or writing or making a movie or just stick to it, you know? But then I said, I don't have to. And I think it goes hand in hand with the fact that I am a third culture kid. You know, I grew up in different environments. I, I speak multiple languages. I never had a sense of belonging to one community. So why should I have a sense of belonging to one career? You know, my interest changes as I evolve, as I grow, and that's okay. That's totally fine. So the only thing I can say to you ladies is follow your passion, follow your heart. Your heart will never lead you astray and do something that you love, especially if you, if what you love is sort of bringing good change into this world and anything, you know, not just in humanity, but in anything, um, you'll really feel fulfilled. Every time you wake up, you'll feel good. I think it's an honor and a privilege for people um, who, for instance, work in nonprofits or volunteer or who are making a change in this world. I think it's a very big privilege for us to be able to do that, to have an impact in people's lives. Someone once said to me, like, you're very lucky to have your job because you're making a difference and it's a privilege for you to be able to do what you're doing, you know? And I said, yeah, it is actually a privilege for me to be able to do what I'm doing, but it takes a lot of sacrifice. And there's a lot of advantages and disadvantages to having your own path away from say nine to five because with nine to five as you ladies know there's a there's a structure it's organized you know what you know the when you're going to get your check you know how much it's going to be there is so much stability and security and that's great but you don't have to, you don't have freedom and you don't love what you do versus the advantage of having something like what i have um you don't know when you're going to get your money you don't know how much it's going to be but you have freedom and you, you know, you make a chunk of money at this period and you live off of it for God knows how long. So you have to be really good at saving, but you have freedom and freedom does not have a price. You wake up when you want to wake up, you sleep when you want to sleep. And every day you work, you, you're happy because you love what you do, but it has the disadvantage of not knowing when you're going to make money or how much you're going to get. So you have to weigh your pros and cons and see what's more important to you. For a lot of my friends, security is far more important than freedom. For me, freedom and flexibility is far more important than security. Girl, I'm inspired. I'm I'm, a, I'm, I'm about to go write all this down. Like, I'm just like, I'm listening. Rezan is like, I'm about plotting. to notice. <laughs> oh my God. I already see, I know, because Enfan particularly is the type of person that loves traveling. And you said, take your computer. Go <laughs> <laughs> she thought about it. I see. I'm like plotting. Yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a beautiful thing to be able to do that, you know, and eventually when you pursue your passion, you're going to make money anyway, you know. So beautiful. I love it. I love it. I, oh, I'm, I'm right waiting now. for Razad and Amfad's big news and like, <laughs> this conversation, we're going to refer back to it maybe in a year and we'll like, I really feel like I'm having a life changing moment right now speaking to you, Sabrina, I'm totally being serious oh, because oh. I've had these thoughts on my mind as well. I think the last time we spoke, before everything got, you know, crazy and 
you know, I had this moment with you, you like heard it in my voice and you, and you called it out. And now we're having a conversation. I just feel like this energy is happening for a reason. I think hearing other people that are doing these things, I may not do it the way, you know, you are doing it or that way Sana is going to do it or Anfal or Abrad. But I think we all have this feeling in common that we know when we're done with something, we're not people that are going to be in one trajectory for the rest of our lives. This probably drives our parents nuts because they want us to just be, you know, they want us to settle down, whatever that means, settle down in a career, settle down in family and do X, Y, and Z. But the more you learn to just do things, the the easier it becomes like second, in, like first instinct. So the first time that we went through this, you know, I personally went through it in 2017 and Fad, you did it when you, um, you know, also had to quit your job and went to grad school and took that leap. And, you know, so now you're going to do it abroad. You're going to do it. I think that knowing that we're capable, it really, it's going to get easier every time. It's, it's yes. only going to push us forward. Yes. So I, I'm, so it's not like it's always like just this force of nature that you're constantly taking these leaps of faith. I think it's like learning your own process and understanding, give yourself that time and be gentle with yourself. It's okay to be hesitant at first and like doubt yourself, but it's like, you know, it's in you because you've done it before. Yeah. I love that we're all in different stages too of this process. Um, you know, I'm like just starting. Sabrina's like us five, 10 years now. <laughs> Sabrina's on an island. Yeah. She's building you her guys, right now. Come on. I'm literally <laughs> just a few months ahead of you guys. I'm just a few months ahead of you. Trust but, me. <laughs> exactly what Isdan said. I think it's really important to embrace, embrace the journey because Sabrina, you described yourself as somebody that's just like, you're just jump and take risks and you just don't look back. For me, it definitely had to be gradual. So I'm somebody that, I kind of did it in baby steps. I had to have multiple conversations with myself um, and only myself because I really was trying to hone into what it is that I wanted and then slowly work my way to actually doing that big step that I wanted. And part of it was like conversation. Some of it was like, okay, looking at different jobs, seeing what I wanted to do. Another part of it was cutting my hair off, right? Because it's like, <laughs> I'm still building I'm slowly building courage but really that's what it was it was tackling my fears and baby steps um and cutting my hair for me was like all right girl there's no turning back stop being scared just do it and so that that I think gave me the push actually I, I know people wow. for some people make sense but for me I knew that it was something that I had to do to stop being afraid the conversation you're saying prayer is a conversation with yourself because God's already within you so yeah it, it sounds like you have to be ready to say it to yourself over and over and over. It's kind of like a pep talk and then it turns into a bigger pep talk. And then you, you're brave enough then to say it even out loud. Like yeah. Sanat, when you said you had the conversation with yourself and yourself only, because you weren't ready to have anybody else hear it yet. You were planting this thing inside of you that you needed to get to a point where you're confident enough to say it. And then I don't know, I mean, speaking things into existence, I've experienced it. When you're ready to say something out loud, you've given it permission to exist. And like, God is working with you to do that. It's not like some magic trick. Like it really is you doing all the work. God's facilitating it with you and for you. But like, you have to make that decision with yourself and then allow yourself to actually express it your wants and your needs. And what is it that you want? That's, that's actually the biggest, I think you spend so much time in that what do I even want phase? But once you know it, it's like, we have so many resources. Like, that's why I'm more frustrated with the fact that I know I've seen people do it. Like you can see exactly what you want. And once you go for it, the doors will open. The opportunities are there. There's so many things you can apply for so many platforms. Like Sana, I experienced this with you when you were ready to do something different. And like, you went for this program and this new opportunity that like, it's just the fact that you even can allow yourself to even consider 
applying for it. That's the biggest step. And then whether you got it or not, it didn't matter because you at least you went for it. Yeah, that was the biggest hurdle for me was opening that door. And I even told myself if this didn't work out, I knew me opening that door meant either way I'm going to quit my job and either way something new is coming. It was just it was just building that courage to take that first big step. And then once I did, I was like, whatever, whatever happens, happens. It's God's way of telling me if this is meant to be or not. If it's not this, then I'm going to, you know, kind of like Sabrina, go back to the drawing board, talk to myself, talk to God and see which direction he's going to take me in. So I knew something was going to change because I felt it. I was ready to take the jump. Excited to rewatch this episode just because. I am too. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I need to rehear all of this, like the gems that we're spitting right now. <laughs> this reminds me of uh, what Razan and Sanat were saying. Um, when I did the documentary, I remember I contacted my friend, um, Daryl Walker. He was the VP of BET. He was my mentor. And I met up with him for lunch and I said, Daryl, I want to do this documentary about Eritrean refugees. Can you maybe find me an executive producer in Hollywood that I can shadow so I could learn how to produce and direct? Because I didn't know anything about it. And he said, no. I'm like, what do you mean no? And he's like, go to the refugee camps, film everything and come back and then we'll talk. I'm like, well, how can I even go film anything that I don't know how to film? I don't know anything about filming, you know? So just you're friends with every actor, you're friends with every producer and director, just find me someone I could shadow. That's not too much to ask. And he said, no, Sabrina, because no one's going to take you seriously. You've never directed, you've never produced. You just want to shadow someone. You're just going to be another person in LA who's trying to do this, but is just talking about it. So he said, go to, go to Sudan, hire a local cinematographer, keep the camera rolling 24-7, film as much as you can, and come back, and then we'll talk. And all the doors will open up for you once you come back with something. But until then, no door is going to open up for you. And, I'm, and that was the hardest thing for me to do. Again, uh, since he said that, it took about two years for me to actually feel brave enough. I was so fearful. I was so scared. But it took two years for me to say, okay, I'm going to go. I called a few documentary filmmakers, like, how do I do this? How do I film that? And they gave me advice, went, filmed it, came back. I contacted Daryl. I'm like, all right, here I am two years later. You know, what do I do now? Where are all the doors that you said were going to open up? And he's like, all right, put together a two minute trailer and just put it on YouTube and, and post things on social media and just let people know what you just filmed. And so I put together a two minute trailer, put it on social media, uh, put it on YouTube. Uh, posted on social media saying I just got back from Sudan here are some pictures I went to do this is not basically told them what my goal was all the doors opened up for me people reached out to me worldwide writers directors colorists graphic designers animators wow this is amazing we've never seen this footage what can we do to help you so everybody offered like a helping hand volunteers people waived their fees because I had something I had something powerful and that was videos you know, so that's, that's advice that I'm trying to give you ladies. Like once you take that leap of faith, once you start something, people are going to see that and they're going to say, well, she started this business. Let's help her. But until then, it's really hard to get people to help you. But once they see something serious, tangible, they're going to say, all right, she deserves help. Whether it's advice or whatever, she deserves help. And that's what, that's what Daryl was trying to teach me that nobody's going to want to help until I have something. So, um, you mentioned before to me that, you know, acting was actually going well for you, but you had to kind of make that conscious decision that it was not for you. It didn't align with who you were. Can you tell us a little bit more about that of why you decided to be behind the scenes more yes. versus in front of the camera? So at the time I was working for a tourism business um, 
called City Sites LA. They're the number one tourism business in New York, City Sites New York. They launched in Los Angeles and they hired me to work as their hotel sales executive for all of Los Angeles hotels. And so um, I remember I was at a, um, a printing shop printing out my new business cards and this gentleman walked up to me and he said, are you an actress? No, I'm not an actress. Oh my God, you should be an actress. No, it's okay. I didn't study acting. I don't know anything about acting. No, I think you should really try it. No, it's okay. You know, my family. And he's like, I insist you've got to try it. And so um, after a lot of back and forth, he's like, just give me one chance to represent you as a manager. And I said, okay. So I remember he signed me and he sent me to my first audition. It was a big show on Nickelodeon called at the time Hollywood Heights. It was a, like a soap opera for teenagers. And he sent me to my first audition and I go to this audition unprepared. I didn't care. I was on my way to the beach, not dressed for the role uh, because again, I don't care. Um, and I booked it. And it was a four episode show, four episode booking where I was a reoccurring co-star and, and he's like, told you <laughs> you know and I'm like oh my god what do I do now and so that opened up a lot of doors for me where I was able to be in commercials and little short films and you know guest appearances here and there and it got to the point where this big agent reached out to me and said hey um I would like to represent you um this was at the time when they were casting True Blood um Game of Thrones and they're like you have the look that producers John want. John Snow? John. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sad that I was in on that show at this point. I'm like, I don't care. I could compromise everything for John Snow. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> uh, huge fan. Anyway, at the time, I didn't know anything about it. It was the beginning. It was 2011 and when they were casting and they were looking for what they called ethnically ambiguous women women that look like us you know yeah. they can't tell where you're from by looking at you, you oh, know? okay and that's what they were looking for. oh my god yeah and so and so the the agent i remember um courtney she she said i'd love to represent you you will make so much money if you just say yes and i said okay but before i say yes um let's talk more about what the expectations are of me as an actress and she said well, what are your restrictions? And I said, restrictions, what do you mean? And she said, you know, things that you're not willing to do on camera. <laughs> and I pretty much listed everything. Yeah. I said, no kissing a guy, no implied nudity, of course, no nudity, no topless, no side, no this, no this, no that. <laughs> and she's like, what? You can't be an actress with all those, no kissing a guy. And I'm like, yeah, of course I can't kiss a guy. My family will kill me. Are you crazy? I'm a Muslim girl. You think they care about a Muslim girl, like a Muslim anything or any religion in Hollywood? Religion does not apply in Hollywood. And the fact that I'm like, my parents are going to kill me. Just, you know, they don't get that because for other people, that's a huge opportunity in Hollywood. And parents would tell their kids, go do what you have to do, you know, especially with that type of money being presented to you on silver platter. Mm -hmm. And so to me, I had no problem saying, no, I'm not going to compromise my faith, my religion, um, forget my parents. Even if my parents endorsed it, I would have said no. The one thing that I loved about my experience in LA is because I was so far away from home in my comfort zone, I became so much more closer to God. I became so much more closer to, because he was, he, he was my family to me, you know, and Hollywood, it's, it's full of shayateen, it's full of devils, you know what I mean, <laughs> testing you. Just say it like that. You know, 
<laughs> tempting you with so many things. Yeah. Tempting you from every direction. You know, we will change your life in a heartbeat. You're going to make this much money overnight. Da, 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 da. All you have to say is yes. You know, so to me, I needed something to protect me. My mom and my dad were no longer there to kind of keep me grounded. It was God that was going to keep me grounded. So mm -hmm. me looking at this agent and saying, absolutely, no, I will turn down this money. I don't care about fame the most important thing to me is my religion and I'm not going to compromise that. She was like, I'm sorry, I can't represent you. And I said, that's totally fine. And I walked out of her office and that was it for me as far as acting went. I didn't even think twice about it. I said, this is not, this is not for me. And I prayed. I remember I prayed Salat al-Istikhara. Um, to those watching who don't know what Salat al-Istikhara is, it's a prayer that Muslims make for guidance when, whenever we want to make a decision. And I said, God, I'm giving up acting. I'm giving up something that I thought was the right thing for me because you brought it to me. I didn't look for it. Um, I'm giving it, I'm giving it up because of my religion. And if this is the case, then I want you to guide me to what it is that I am born to do. Cause I still don't know. I'm in my mid twenties now and I'm confused. Like, what do I do? You know? And that's when he directed me to the documentary that I directed and produced, which I ended up absolutely falling in love with the experience way more than I enjoyed acting. And so to me, that was God saying, you know what? You gave up acting for the religion. I will guide you to something that you will be far more passionate in pursuing. And this is it. That's absolutely beautiful. It's, it's so funny that, not funny, but, but it, it's, it's, it's really um, beautiful that God gave you something seemingly easy, right? It was, yeah. it, 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 it's like an easy choice. It's like, you'll, you'll be famous. You'll have money. Yeah. You'll do this and you'll do that. And like you said, it would have, it would have been, easy to just go with that option but because yeah. you didn't and and for like reasons that you believed in god gave you something that also would fulfill your soul and not yeah. just fulfill like these material things yes absolutely That's absolutely it. yeah all right so let's get kind of get into this amazing project that you've created what sparked this interest for you so um it was in 2000 and when was this um 2013 i went to an annual convention that we have in the u.s called emc eritrean muslim convention where eritreans nationwide gather to do we have different activities and programs and within one of the programs there's a program called matrimony event where they try to set up the men and the eritrean women to meet each other it's like speed dating but there's chaperones adults watching us it's really awkward <laughs> and so I remember my dad um, was a board member. And so he's like, you have to go to this matrimony event. You know that, right? And I'm like, no, Baba, there's no way I'm going to go to this matrimony event. Because first of all, I just, I just knew right away that I wasn't going to find someone that is my cup of tea at this matrimony event, you know? Um, and so my dad is like, just go just, just out of respect for, you know, the fact that I'm the one of the board members, it's not going to look good if my daughter doesn't go. So anyway, I go. And we're getting to know all these guys. And one of the guys that I met was a refugee who just migrated into the U.S. And he shared his journey with me about, like, just really personal stories about how he, when he fled Eritrea, he went into the refugee camps in Sudan. Then he fled the refugee camp for a better life in Europe. And he got smuggled for ransom. And he got tortured. He got electrocuted. He got beaten. They killed his best friend. And I'm sitting there like, what am I hearing? And so everyone is thinking, wow, Sabrina found her future husband, you know? Meanwhile, I'm fascinated by his story. And so I didn't believe him because I'm like, this is too cinematic. Like, it doesn't even sound real. And then he rolled up his sleeves to show me some scars that he had on his arms. At that point, 
oh my God, the hair on my arm. At that point, I just, it literally instantly changed my life. I went back to the hotel and I told my dad, I'm like, Baba, did you know that this actually happens to our people? And he's like, what do you mean? Do I know? Of course I know. Like, I'm surprised you don't know, you know? And I'm like, no, I knew that there are refugees fleeing, but I didn't know they were getting tortured. And the fact that, I remember he said to me, as you and I are sitting here talking about it, there are women your age getting, getting raped by these men, you know? And I really felt ashamed, you know, even being at that hotel, sleeping in that white bed. I remember I couldn't sleep that night a woman my age or even younger is being tortured by men, you know, that made me angry. And so I said, all right, if I don't know about it, and I consider myself intelligent with world affairs, but if I am that disconnected about what's happening with my people, then imagine how many other people are unaware as well. And so I talked to my dad the next day and I said, I think we should do a documentary to raise awareness because there are YouTube videos, but it's obviously not reaching everyone. So let's do a documentary, but it, you know, making a documentary, you've got to go to the refugee camps. It's not safe. You have to have government permit to enter the refugee camps in Sudan. They don't give permits to people to just film. They don't allow filming even at the refugee camps. There's so many restrictions. And my dad, being an activist and a freedom fighter in Eritrea, he's one of the most wanted people in Eritrea, as it is. For his daughter to go to the border of Eritrea and Sudan is a no-no. They would love to have me to retaliate against him, which they do that a lot. The Eritrean government will come into Sudan, kidnap people and leave to retaliate against somebody that they want. And so fast forward, it took me about two, three years and 15, end of 2015, I just, I remember I called my dad and I said, you know what, I'm going. I'm going to Sudan. I'm gonna hire a local cinematographer, a Sudanese guy, to blend in with me and go to the refugee camps and I will wear my hijab and I will blend in like a refugee and we're gonna, we're gonna shoot a documentary because this is the only way to do it. And he said, all right, well, I'm, I'm okay with that as long as I come with you. And I said, coming with me, you're putting me at risk. You know, they want you, you know, they don't really care to have me. They want you. And he's like, I know, but I don't, I'm not going to let you go by yourself. It's too risky for you. If anything happened, I should be there uh, to protect you. And so we embarked on the journey together in um, end of 2015 and did this documentary. It took us a few years to do it. And now it's done. And Razan saw it in 2018. <laughs> <laughs> Junior, recently, I can say um, I, all, all those emotions came back even more strongly now, like today, versus even watching it two years ago. So, um, you know, what you created was so powerful. You know, congratulations. Thank you so much for making it. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, speaking about it doesn't do it justice. It's, you know, seeing it and seeing the footage and the effort that you put in to go out there um, and understanding all the loopholes and the challenges you had to face to do this. Um, do you think that this documentary's impact, you know, did it achieve what you wanted? Did it actually, do you feel like what you wanted to get out of it actually came out? Or do you feel like this is something that's going to be a continuing thing for you? It's not just about the documentary. Yeah, so the documentary did a lot more than I expected it to do. I thought, first of all, honestly, I'm not going to lie. I didn't even have a plan. I just wanted to raise awareness. Again, I've never been a filmmaker. Remember, God pulled me away from acting and took me to a new path that I was unfamiliar with. So it was my first film. And I didn't know what my plan was. My plan was to just obviously just raise awareness. Mm -hmm. um, I did that internationally. I screened it. But it opened up a huge door for me. In addition to raising awareness and touching the hearts of people, including you, Razan, 
we were able to open up a nonprofit organization because people are like, all right, this is amazing. We want to donate. What can we do to help improve the refugee camps? We want to help you on your mission to send kids to school and help women, et cetera, et cetera. I had to create a platform to receive people's donation. And that's when Refugee was born a couple of years ago as a result of this documentary. And now I'm operating Refugee full time. We're working on these amazing projects that are actually making an impact on the refugee camps. So I think to me, the documentary did way more than I ever imagined for it to do. And more importantly than making an impact on the, on, on the refugee camps, for me, making an impact on people's lives here in the US and Europe is a lot more important because once I touch people's hearts here in the US and in Europe, they're gonna extend their helping hand to also do something in the refugee camps. I alone can't do something, other organizations can't do enough. But if more people can come and say, what can we do to help out, whether it's through their organization or collaborating with me, then we can, make, we can have a greater impact in the refugee camps. And so to me, having an impact on these people's lives was more important than the camps because they will help us achieve our goal in the camps. So uh, the documentary opened up the path for me with the nonprofit and I feel like, you know, I constantly pray salt and istihada for direction and God continues to guide me on new paths all the time. And so um, I'm really grateful that I was put on the path to tell the story through the documentary. I loved the documentary. I was so moved and I also felt really bad that there was this whole community that I had no idea even existed. Yeah. Um, and a lot of, I think in Sudan in general, we, we don't really talk about the refugee community that, that are in different mm -hmm. parts of Sudan. Um, there, we have our own like genocide and crazy yeah. things happening, yeah. even in the region where the refugee camps are located in Kesala. They also are dealing with a lot of tribal issues and, and issues with the Sudani government. So I was so surprised to know how many people were there. I think it was half a million or one million. And it was each refugee camp was 16,000 people. That's a lot of people that are seemingly ignored and, and people don't really know about. So I, I think it was so important that you were able to bridge that gap. In, in knowledge for people, but also, um, you know, now you have this huge amount of money, all this attention, everybody is focused on the refugee camps, you have to build a nonprofit, you know, from the ground up, what do you do? It's just your, it's just you, right? At this point, you're a one woman show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really tough. Um, that's what I, well, you know, when I started this chat with you guys, I said it's not easy. I've had more downs than ups um, because that's one thing when you pursue something that you truly love, it's going to be a bumpy ride. It's not going to be easy. Um, and doing the documentary was difficult. It took three years. It took, we had, we ran out of money. It was, it was tough, but I loved every day of it. I put in 15, 16 hours a day, a day working people would be like, Sabrina, please sleep, please eat. But I didn't care because I loved what I was doing. It was like when you have a newborn baby, not that I have a newborn baby. So, but from when I was <laughs> you know, and you guys are like, well, we don't know about that. I don't know if you guys have babies or not, but no. <laughs> not okay. yet. Like, you know, when a mom has a newborn baby, she's obsessed over her child and she doesn't care about sleep and they complain about lack of sleep or whatnot, but they just do it with pride and joy. And so that's what it is when you do something you love. And then as far as the nonprofit, it's, it's tough. I've 
been doing it for two and a half years. It is, I don't want to say it's a one woman show because I have amazing board members that back me up. I have amazing volunteers from time to time that come and help out when I need them. So I couldn't have done it alone. I can't take, I can't say it's a one woman show. It takes a whole t a, a tribe, uh, but it's difficult because I founded it and I'm the main person. Volunteers come and go, board members come and go, but I'm always gonna be there. Um, and it's very challenging from time to time. We don't have enough money to do this and enough money to do that. Um, but I know what my purpose is, and my purpose is not to solve the entire refugee crisis, which is what I thought I was gonna do when I started the nonprofit. Like, I'm gonna make sure every child is in school. I'm gonna provide every woman with whatever woman needs that she has. I'm going to do this, I'm gonna do that. And that was just being way overly ambitious. But I realized that that's not possible. And I can just pick a few specific areas of focus that I can focus in. And if I can change the lives of just some people, then I could feel better sleeping at night. When I do get questioned by Allah one day, when it's my time to go, what did you do with the blessings that I gave you? I want to be able to have an answer. You know, I may not say solve the entire refugee crisis, but I might have changed 20 people's lives. You know, I, maybe I sent two, 20 kids to school. And so to me, that's my, the purpose of refugee care. And I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I get discouraged. Sometimes I'm like, why did I start this nonprofit? It's really difficult. It's a whole organization. I, I could be focusing on my next movie, but you know. But then I start watching the documentary and just like Razan said, watching it again now has a whole different impact than it did when she watched mm -hmm. it two years ago. Same for me. Every time I watch it, I'm like, this is who I'm doing it for. And then I have tons mm -hmm. of videos that I haven't released in the documentary or anywhere that only I have beautiful videos of women, of children playing, laughing, some of them in pain, you know, every time I watch it, it sort of refuels my energy. And I'm like, this is who I'm doing it for. So whenever I feel discouraged, I'm like, nope, this is who I'm doing it for. I'm not going to give up. I think that's so beautiful. When I, I was really moved watching your documentary as well, particularly because first you shed light on an issue that a lot don't know about. Right. And, and in addition to that, I, I want to explore how it was for you to to see your own people struggling, right? Because it's one thing when when we're watching documentaries of, let's say, a crisis that is a bit more removed from us, but to see your own people suffering like that is is a whole different level. Like for like my family's from Darfur, right? I've gone to Darfur, I've been to Dar refugee camps in Darfur, and I know that I. I've struggled with like uh, the like guilt, you know, like that you use the word yeah. privilege and, and, and blessings that God has given you. And it's like, why was I chosen and why not this yeah. person? And so right now when you were talking about that fueling you, I think it's, yeah, like how was that emotional journey? Yeah. And to piggyback off of what I'm saying, you also, you know, I'm, I'm thinking if I was in your place, it's also like, it could have been you because in the documentary you mentioned you were one of the last planes to leave um, Eritrea and, and to flee. So I, I would love to hear that answer too. Yeah. Um, well, that's one of the things that continue to motivate me. The fact that I was fortunate enough to get on that last airplane. If I was not an American, um, who knows? I could have been in the refugee camp now. I could have been one of the women getting, you know, tortured um, while migrating into Europe, who knows if I would have been alive. And I would have hoped that people who were fortunate enough to be in better countries would come to my rescue. And so, yeah, 
I, some of my cousins are in the, were in the refugee camps, you know, some of my cousins got smuggled for ransom. We had to pay and get them out. So it hit too close to home. But when I was in Sudan, when I went to Sudan, um, there was a transformation as to who I was when I first got there to who I ended up being by the time I left. I was there for a few weeks and going into it, I was a Los Angeles, you know, girl, privileged palm trees, Hollywood. <laughs> and I went there with my dad and I remember the first night we stayed with one of my aunts in Khartoum and I wanted to use the bathroom. This is the day we arrived from the airport and it was one of those um, toilets on the ground. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the floor squatting <laughs> ones. <laughs> I've seen them. It's not like I've never seen them. I've seen them in Eritrea, but that was like maybe in the mid nineties, you know, eventually they, my dad built a toilet. So going, seeing that in 2015 was, I'm like, they still have this. So I remember I refused to use it. I'm like, Baba, I'm not squatting on that thing. Like it has bacteria. It has, I don't know what it has. I'm not using, you know, and he's like, you have to Sabrina, like you're in their country now. You can't huff and puff and this and that, you know, leave that Hollywood behavior back in LA. He was like, you want to use the bathroom? Squat and be like them, you know? I'm looking and I, at Sudan and I see your eyes because it's like, she relates to this experience. <laughs> I don't know if I could have done it. Girl. <laughs> I've been through that. <laughs> yeah. And, You're and brave. What, do you, what do you, it's like at the wee hours of the night, right. we arrived so right. late, where yeah. are we going to go? And then it's my aunt's house. It's my dad's sister. So like, we can't offend her yeah. so yeah <laughs> business handled <laughs> but the next day I remember the next day I'm like Baba I don't care my bladder can explode I'm not doing this again Take me. <laughs> you got to find me a hotel and find me toilet paper find me like wash everything you know and he's like all right so the next day we go and we find a hotel <laughs> you know I was I've never been so happy to see a toilet in my life you know the way it was the next day but then a couple days later we go to Kassala now you know it's time for us to visit the refugee camps and I remember I take my first shower and it was cold so I'm like trying to turn the knob you know to get warm water and there's no such thing as warm water you know and where I, I was specifically staying and so I asked my dad I'm like mama there's no warm water you know and he's like Sabrina this behavior of yours, this fortunate, privileged behavior and attitude of yours, I told you, leave it in LA. You're in Sudan. You're in Kassala. You're about to visit refugee camps who don't even have water to wash themselves with. You know, he was like, humble yourself. If you want to get the real experience of what the, these refugees are experiencing, go through what they're going through. You know, stop huffing and puffing. You know, you're here to, to film a documentary about what they're going through day to day and you're complaining about the water not being warm enough for you. So I was really embarrassed. And I'm like, all right, I'm just going to do my best, you know, to wash myself in the most important areas. I'm not, you know, I'm like, forget my hair. I don't care. I'm going to wash my hair for a couple of weeks. It was just, honestly, it was really cold. Um, but then I went to the refugee camps for the first time. And I saw what they're going through. And I remember I had a bottle of water, you know, I, I had a bottle of water. I was drinking water. And... I could see them. You know how, I don't know if it's in other parts in Sudan as well. You know how sometimes they collect water from the rain? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the way they, most people drink water in, in Khartoum or not. Not, but, not in Khartoum. But yeah, not in Khartoum. Yeah. That's how it was. So we went to Gadarif and Kassala, um, and, and that's just how they drink water. And you could see the water is dirty. 
you know, and then I find out from experts there that some of them drink salty water, muddy water. Um, and here I am drinking bottled water that they brought for me. And I felt embarrassed drinking water from there, you know? And so I'm like, Baba, I want to drink the same water that they're drinking. I feel really embarrassed drinking bottled water. And the teachers were like, don't, don't, because their immune is prepared for it. Their immune is used to it. Google died the minute you take a sip of their water. So, (laughs) um, but it really, it really made me sad. And I, and right away, I'm like, who cares about taking a shower with warm water or using a toilet that's on the ground? Like who cares about these things? I remember when I was at one of the schools at the camp, I actually saw lots of bottled water at the principal's office and I was chatting with the principal and I asked him, I said, so I asked him, you know, I said, oh, you guys, you guys recycle. This is amazing. You guys are recycling at the refugee camp, you know, go green. Like, that's awesome. And he's like, no, he's like, this is not for recycling. This is for students who don't have food. They come to school and they put bread in the bottle of water and they mix it with water and they shake it and they drink it. And that's how they, this is their meal. And I felt so again, embarrassed of having the opportunity to be fed well, to have opportunity to drink clean water, to be able to go to my hotel at night. Um, Every day we had to leave by sunset because it was too dark and they didn't have electricity and it was unsafe. And so two weeks into it, it really changed my life to the point that on my last day, I cried so much because I didn't want to leave. I wanted to stay in the camps. It was such a humbling experience to be able to dress the way I dressed and to hang out with the kids and play in the dirt. It was a really humbling experience. It was life, like real life. And it completely disconnected me from everything Los Angeles, everything Hollywood. Mm -hmm. From the entertainment industry to Kassala and Gavarif in the refugee camps, it's it's a big transformation. So I will say going into it, I, I was privileged, very fortunate, very unaware of people who don't have what I have. You hear about it on TV, you, you know, you, but it just, it's a different experience when you witness it with your own eyes. By the time I left, I could see myself being a lot more humble. I was humble before, but the level of humility I reached, I was incapable of knowing that I could reach. Um, so sometimes I go back to LA, even now I find myself complaining about over stupid little things. And I automatically remember what these refugees are going through. And I, I could hear my dad saying like, Sabrina, to relax, you know? And so I try to catch myself every time I complain about something, because I know the grass is not greener on the other, other side. I know the refugees are struggling. There are much worse scenarios. And so all I can say is Alhamdulillah for the, for, you know, for the privilege that we all have now. And let's do something about it. Let's use the privilege that we have now to, to give back to them and to hopefully change someone's life in the camp. A word that like kept coming to my mind when I was watching the documentary was just like resilience of like the human spirit. Like in in the documentary, there was the Hedja who was being, um, she was being checked on, like the older lady she was being checked on. And she was like, oh, after this, I'm going to go congratulate a new bride. And she was like happy, right? And and I was thinking like, look at the beauty of humanity that in, in seemingly like, like destitute place people are still getting married having kids they're laughing they're trying to find joy in little moments whereas here from like our perspective in america we're like oh my god i don't know like what i would do but it to to see it like that i thought was so beautiful they are honestly so resilient so courageous so brave so patient and they're making lemonade out of lemons that woman i i don't know if you remember my dad told her he goes we're gonna have to find you a husband you know and she said yeah i want a husband 
Yeah. I remember she was 103. <laughs> that struck me, you know, like that many generations of people. I think I learned a fun fact that, well, a fact that the first wave of refugees didn't arrive, arrived in 67, but mm -hmm. like you're filming this in 2015 and this is like, they just had their first high school in one of the most difficult camps to survive in. So like, that is the definition of resilience. Like I'm always going to think of that now as a reference, um, you know, uh, it's just something I didn't couldn't fathom mm -hmm. until I saw it in your documentary. Yeah. Yeah. I got invited to a wedding there once and they really turned the camps into communities and they're just trying to make the best out of it. Um, my favorite part of the whole trip was children. I love, love, love kids so much. And so whenever the doctors or the adults would look for me, they're like, where's Sabrina? Where, where is she now? And they're like, let's go look in the kids section. She's probably there. <laughs> they find me there. Um, and I remember I asked the kids, do you want to go back to America with me? And they said, no. And I said, why, why not? And they're like, we like it here. We're happy. You know, and and they don't know what's outside of the refugee camp because they were all they know. That's all they know, and they They've were made happy. it home. They right. made it home, right? And so how can we complain about what we don't have here? So refuge care is basically trying to work at a level where how do you make their livelihood as best as possible? Like I think one of your focuses is education, and that's kind of how you ended the documentary with this is the bright light, is that look at these children, look at this, you know, the school with all women, that was so inspiring and how motivated they were um, with very little. So, you know, moving forward, like, you know, whoever's seen this documentary, whoever will see this documentary, like what is an action point that they can take um, to actually feel like they can contribute and do something to help the people that you showed us um, and like put faces to these stories and not just reading about them, but we actually can remember them. Yeah, to anybody that's watching this, if you wanna do something other than just donating financially, volunteer, you know, I get people contacting me worldwide, like what can I do? I wanna help out, volunteer, come with us to the refugee camps, help us distribute, distribute goods to the camps or brainstorm with us. Let's create projects and campaigns. Um, a young woman reached out to me literally two, three weeks ago to say, hey, I want to raise money for refugees, Eritrean refugees in Ethiopia for COVID-19. Can I do it through your nonprofit? And I said, absolutely. So uh, we both edited this video. In fact, she did the majority of the editing herself. She edited this video, which I launched on social media a couple of days ago um, to raise money to send sanitary essentials to the refugee uh, refugees in Ethiopia. So we need more people like her who can just basically say, what do we need to do? I want to be in charge of this campaign or that campaign. Um, just so you guys know, the three areas that refugee care focuses on is children's education. We, we do want to make sure every child has access to education, women's needs, because they don't have sanitary products for the monthly cycles. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this in the documentary, but I asked the girls in school at Shagarab camp, I asked them what they use for their, because they said they don't have any products for their monthly cycle. And so I asked them what they use and they, they laughed and they said, we don't use anything. We use a towel for the same week. You know, we wash, repeat, wash, repeat. And we don't go to school for the entire week during that time of the month because it's sort of like a shameful thing there. And, and they want to go to school and they said, it's not fair. Like we want to go to school. We want to have those products, you know? And so there's no reason why women don't have access to something so simple like that. So refugee work focuses on that as well. And then the third is sort of like the most important thing for us, uh, recreational activities, entertainment. Uh, why? Because the number of refugees in the, in the camps, their mental illness is increasing drastically because they're bored. They have nothing to do. 
nothing to do in the camps. They wake up, they eat, they wander around after school. What are they going to do? And there's no electricity, right, Sabrina? There's no electricity. Okay. So no internet, no electricity. No internet, no, no electricity. There's nothing for them to do. They're bored. There's no music. There's no, there's nothing. And so they're becoming mentally ill. Some of them are bored. So they flee the refugee camps to go to Europe and then they get smuggled for ransom. And some of them commit suicide. And so we're like, all right, there's so many organizations focusing on basic needs like food, water, health, but nobody's really focusing on the entertainment of these, for these refugees. And I live in the entertainment capital of the world. So why don't I utilize the tools that I have there with perhaps sending musical instruments to them, sending books, sending anything that will, building soccer fields, building volleyball fields. Like we asked the girls, like, what do you, what sport would you like to play? And they said volleyball, you know, but you'd have to cover it up because we don't want the boys to see us play. And I'm like, all right, let's work on that, you know? So, so yeah, so we're working on building, you know, like, so they can play sports, athletic, anything, music, just to build communities in the camps, you know, to alleviate boredom. So yeah. So if anyone watching this, if there's anything you guys can do to help, reach out to Refugee Care or reach out to any of the other organizations, organizations worldwide serving Eritrean refugees and just say, hey, what can I do other than donate? Can I volunteer? Can I work on this campaign with you all? Just there's so much to do. There's so much. The, every little project is a huge accomplishment in the refugee camp because they don't have anything. It's so inspiring how you've taken so many um like privileges that you that we you talked about before of like financial um stability and also having like um parental uh, guidance there and turned it into an amazing opportunity that you can give back to your community not only with bringing awareness but also creating like lasting change with changing the minds and hearts of these kids, giving them an opportunity to learn, giving them an opportunity to be creative and think outside of their current situation. And I think that's very inspiring for all of us to like have a moment to look into our own lives and see how can we produce that within ourselves. Like, I love that so much. So this conversation I think could keep going definitely, but I just kind of wanted to, um, you know, send, end it off with, we talked about a lot of things. We talked about you as a person, but then also you in your career. Um, and, you know, I think one thing that we can all take away is that we're always going to be learning and growing and there is no end to any of this. There is no goal that just kind of you stop there. Um, so we are just really honored that you were able to come on this episode with us and taught us so much. Um, you know, I think everyone we come in contact with, everyone that we've had these conversations with has influenced our lives in one way or another. Um, and I feel very much connected to the story that you shared with us. Um, and so we just really hope to continue this conversation with you in other ways. And we're so excited to be able to share this with everybody. Like it's exciting yeah. to have this conversation, but it's more exciting that we're going to be able to share it with people on our platform um, and just be able to open that door up for other people that are also on the verge of doing something amazing and they just need, maybe need to hear this as well. So um, Sabrina, I'll just leave you to wrap, say the last thing, the last thing you want to leave our audience with and we'll wrap up. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you ladies for giving me the opportunity to get to know you and your work. And it's an honor for me as well. And you guys totally remind me of who I was just a few years ago, I could totally relate to everything that you said. And I believe in you. I believe in your ability. I know you're courageous. I know you're just afraid, but I have so much faith that you're going to take that leap of faith. And everyone that's watching this, do not be afraid. Just 
just jump, you know, or I'm going to come and push you off the cliff. (laughs) (laughs) So, and just remember that life is full of ups and downs, you know, uh, one route is not easier than the other. They're all challenging, but uh, would you rather um, face challenges in your boring job or would you rather face challenges in something that you love? So just keep that in mind and pursue your passion and pay attention to what your talent, your God-given skill is. Pray and ask for clarity and for guidance. And I hope that all of us, we're going to have to do another video, like maybe in a year. Or something. <laughs> I Just think like a so. Follow-up. To check where everyone's at that, at that point. A follow-up. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Yeah. So, but thank you. Thank you to all of you. Okay. Thank you, Sabrina. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.